I want to get, begin by reading from Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, the first 14 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Thus far God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, again, we thank you for the blessing of being together. We thank you for the power of reading your word. We pray that you would apply your word to our hearts that has been read, that you would bless our time together as we think about church history, as we think about the doctrine of salvation, as we think about digging a little more into the fact that you loved us first. Your word tells us clearly, we love you because you loved us first. May that truth set us free. Lord, our faith, our repentance, our response to you, our salvation, you get the glory. It is of you. Salvation is of the Lord. Help us not to be afraid of that. Help us to simply care about knowing what your word teaches in truth, knowing what you have given us in your word so that it might sustain us and empower us and change us, that we might rest in you and love you and live for you, that we might encourage one another in the faith and share that faith with those all around us. Lord, any understanding of your truth that quenches our evangelism, we've gotten it wrong. So help us, Lord, to understand your word rightly, to live in its light, to growingly live for your glory, to love you because you have first loved us. It's in Jesus' holy name that I pray. 
Amen. We're going to do a little bit of study in church history this time. This is a little different time than normally together, but I want to say a couple things to you. One is church history is not just an academic exercise. It's not just something to fatten our heads. It, it encourages us. It helps us as we see how God has worked in times past and how the church has responded to various challenges. We have a lot of inspired church history in the Word. How much of your Bible is history? You know, we don't want to be those that said that those who refuse to study history are doomed to repeat it. Now, we, we want to learn the lessons that others have learned, the right lessons that others have learned. And we're going to, in the bulk of this study, we will be just digging in the Word because what we want to know, what does this book teach? But tonight, I think it'll be helpful to go over a lesson of history, just to think about some history. Look back in time. Look at faithful brothers and sisters in the past who have come into certain um, times of conflict and have come out of them more purified and have come out of them uh, knowing more about what the Word of God teaches. So we're going we're gonna to look at the history of what we call the doctrines of grace. We're going to see the history of where exactly did the tulip come from? Where did, where did, where did, where did what we call Calvinism? And let me warn you there, I'm going to step over here and say, not everything people understand as Calvinism is truly Calvinism. There's a lot of people that teach as a straw man, a hyper version of Calvinism so that they can easily knock that down to promote a different theory, right? When, when, when I'm saying, and Calvin would roll over in his grave if we thought we ever named anything after him, right? A humble man. But, but what we want to know is what the Word teaches. And then if it lines up with what is called Calvinism, rightly understood, then we want to embrace that. But the things that we're going to study are termed the doctrines of grace, the doctrines of salvation. And we'll take those one at a time. And again, I'm re reiterating this over and over and over. We're simply going to be asking the question, what does the Word of God teach? And then we want to embrace what the Word teaches. But I want to take you through a little bit of history and just show you where exactly did this, this tulip come from? What, what was its purpose? And, and that'll help us in itself to see where it came from. I want to tell you this also. These are just snapshots in church history. So when I talk about Pelagian controversy, I'm not going to give you much, but I'll give you a push in the right direction. You can go look up good material or you can ask for more good material on things like that. But I've tried to shape this tonight in such a way that we won't be here till 830 and that, <laughs> and that it'll make sense to you and help you along the way to see exactly where these things came from. So I'm going to start, you have a, uh, we'll have a screen, a quote on the screen here. It's a long quote, but listen, Charles Spurgeon is one of those people that, that people fight over. The Armenian side, no, he's on our side. Calvinist side, no, he's on our side. Well, I'm going to let him answer that question for you. And this comes straight out of one of his sermons. Charles Spurgeon says this, There is no such thing as preaching Christ and Him crucified unless you preach what nowadays is called Calvinism. I have my own ideas and those I always state boldly. It is a nickname to call it Calvinism. Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. Do you think he was on that side? <laughs> 
I do not believe we can preach the gospel if we do not preach justification by faith without works or unless we preach the sovereignty of God in His dispensation of grace nor unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Jehovah. Nor, I think, can we preach the gospel unless we base it upon the particular redemption which Christ made for His elect and chosen people. Nor can I comprehend a gospel which lets saints fall away after they are called and suffers the children of God to be burned in the fires of damnation after having believed. Such a gospel I abhor. The doctrines of grace, we're going we're to go through them because we believe they're biblical truth. But they're given to us not primarily for us to be haughty about theology or talk down about other people or win arguments. They're, they're given to us, number one, because they're a good summary of what the Bible teaches about these things. And they're, what they promote in the life. When you rightly understand and embrace God's sovereignty in every area as well as salvation, it promotes peace and security and rest in Christ. So that's the goal is for you to rest in Christ. But today, the history of the five points of Calvinism. Um, as I go through this, we, we can't do a lot of this, but if or we will be here late 30. But if you have questions, just... Kind of, let me see your hand, and we'll, we'll pause and take those at the right places. If I, if I look at you and don't stop, I'll come back to you in just a minute, okay? But I want to start off with just a, just a capsule summary of an ancient controversy. This, we're going to start early and lead up quickly to where the five points come from. But we'll start with an ancient controversy. This is between Pelagius and Augustine in the, in the 5th century A.D. Augustine said this. He, he, he gave this quote, or this part of a prayer, to God. Grant what you command and command what you desire. Grant what you command and command what you desire. Grant us to line up with what you command. Pelagius responds, so Augustine, maybe if you don't know much about Augustine, but or Augustine, Augustine, however you prefer to say that. He lived from 354 to 430 A.D. And Pelagius was a British monk who lived about that same time. And uh, there was a conflict over these things. So you heard the quote of Augustine, and then Pelagius responds with this. He was upset because he said, We do not have to ask for grace to obey. If God commands it, and here's his baseline assumption. Pelagius believed that if God commands it, we have the power to do it. That's what, that's what he believed. Where does that come from? Well, Pelagius denied that the human nature had been corrupted by sin. His leading principle was that man's will is absolutely free. Hence, everyone has the power within himself to believe the gospel as well as to perfect, listen to this, as well as to perfectly keep the law of God. The act of faith flows from the sinner's will. See, his baseline assumption, Pelagius' assumption, is if God has commanded it, we have the power to do it. 
So he, he doesn't have to grant for us to do it if he's commanded it. We already have that ability. Why, what, what else did he maintain? Well, Pelagius' view of the fall, Genesis 3, our fall into sin. His view, his view was basically that fall only affected Adam. And the only effect that flows from Adam is a bad example, basically. So there's no guilt or corruption inherited from Adam. Adam just set a bad example, right? But we still are born righteous, right, with the ability and power to keep God's law with the ability and power to believe. Now, just on a summary statement like that, would you say that that's what the Word of God teaches? Thank you. I'm glad you would say that. Good Charles Finney was a pretty good disciple of, of the monk Pelagius. If you don't know, you can look into that. R.C. Sproul said Finney was not a, a heretic. He said, don't hear me. I'm not calling that man a heretic. Get me right. He's an arch heretic, a heresy arch. And if you read some of his stuff, you'll see why. But, so Pelagius sees the ability in us. He sees there no corruption in us from the fall. It, that we have the power within ourselves to both believe the gospel as well as to perfectly keep God's law. The act of faith flows from the sinner and from the sinner's will. If God has commanded it, we have the ability to do it. So that's where Pelagius stands, and that's why he got mad at the grant what you command part of that quote. He has no problem with God commanding what he desires, but he had a problem with having to pray for the ability to keep what God commands because he assumed we had that ability. But Augustine, on a more biblical stand, maintained that human nature had been so completely corrupted by Adam's fall that no one in himself has the ability to obey either the law or the gospel. For Augustine, therefore, the act of faith results not from the sinner's free will, as Pelagius taught, but from God's free grace, which is bestowed on the elect only. Augustine won the day, uh, the church declared Pelagius a heretic in 418 at the Council of Carthage, and he was exiled in 429. You could clearly see that it, just on a, on a cursory, you could clearly see that his ideas were unbiblical, Pelagius's, right? He had a good concern. He saw corruption, and he wanted to fight against that corruption, right? He wanted, he wanted to be righteous and promote righteousness. <clears throat> he just went to, he went off the rails, scripturally. But Augustine had a biblical doctrine of man, which understand that we do inherit that guilt and corruption from Adam. So that in and of ourselves, as, as lost, as fallen, as descendants from Adam, the first Adam, remember our, our study in, in Romans 5, that we were lost without hope, needing a Savior. Jesus even said that the one that's in darkness loves the darkness and hates the light and won't come into the light. Right? That doesn't sound like anybody's going to love the truth and want to do the truth. But Pelagius was declared a heretic. Maybe we don't see a problem with that. I hope we don't see a problem with that because, because he was. He had a false understanding of Scripture. He promoted a false gospel. He was not true. And so the church recognized that, and he was condemned as a heretic and exiled. <clears throat> Jump ahead a little bit. This is 5th and 6th century A.D., 
Augustine had so fully discredited Pelagianism that it collapsed, praise God, at least in that time, that it collapsed. But a new system presented itself, and it was, it was called semi-Pelagianism, seeing itself as sort of a, a midway position between Pelagius and Augustine. This new system taught that man with his own natural powers is able to take the first step towards his conversion. And that this obtains or merits the Spirit's assistance. You catch that? So he didn't go all the way with Pelagius, but see, man is still able to take the first step, and then that first step merits God's assistance. By his spirit. So it was called semi, by the church, semi Pelagianism because it occupied that medium ground, but it's it seemingly. It's still in the camp of non truth. It acknowledged, semi Pelagianism acknowledged that Adam's sin extended to his posterity and that the human nature was corrupted by sin, but on the other hand, on the one hand, it starts to take that back away on the, on the other hand. But on the other hand, it held a system to a system of universal grace for all men alike, making the final decision in every case of every individual dependent upon the exercise of their free will. So it still rests on man and his ability. It still rests on his free will not to fully keep the law or save himself or anything. But man is able to take that first step. And once he does that, then God kicks in. In the salvation. So semi-Pelagianism argued that the individual makes the initial step of faith before saving grace is given. Here's their maxim. They're saying, It is mine to be willing to believe... And it is the part of God's grace to assist. They asserted the sufficiency of Christ's grace for all and that everyone, according to his own will, obeyed or rejected the invitation. While God, now listen to this, according to the semi-Pelagian people camp, while God equally wished and equally aided all men to be saved. Semi-Pelagianism was condemned as heresy in the Second Council of Orange in 529. <clears throat> Pelagianism, heresy, not biblical. Semi-Pelagianism, we pulled back some of it, but we kept the initial step. Heresy, not biblical. You're starting to see, though, as we start walking through these things, that a lot of what's in the church today sounds a lot like this. And boy, do, would we have the guts today to name, name it what it deserves to be named. So you see in the history of the church a lot of man-centeredness, a lot of over-evaluation of the ability of the lost man. And it's all, listen, we're going to dig into this when we get into the, to the t tulip. And we're going to show total depravity and we're going to show it from Scripture. So... Yeah, yes, this may raise more questions than it answers tonight. But tonight I wanted you to see a little bit of the flow towards what happened, where, where we get the tulip, and, and, and a little bit of that history. So we're, we're still leaning on man. It's still really up to the initiative of man. 
to take that first step. Paul said, you're just mostly dead in sin and trespasses, but you can take that first step. If you can get Billy Crystal to help you, Princess Bride, you watch the movie. So we're going to fast forward because, again, I don't want to be here till 8.30. But I'm just saying, go, go read more on Pelagianism. Go read more on semi-Pelagianism if you're interested. You know, you can fill in these gaps. If you're not interested, I'm just trying to give you a little bit enough of a foundation to see where this stuff came from. <clears throat> because though these things were declared heresy in the ancient history of the church, they're still around. They're around all over the place. All right, look at, look at point three. The origin of the five points of Arminianism. And you say, wait, what do you mean? Don't you mean the five points of Calvinism? I do not mean that. What came first was the five points of Arminianism. This is, we're flashing forward to the 17th century to a theological conflict in, in Holland, in the Netherlands. In 1610, just one year after the death of Jacob Arminius. Arminius was one who lived there, um, who did a lot of studies, who ended up being a pastor, even ended up being a university professor. And he taught a lot of things and, and openly taught things against the, the, the official doctrine of the church, which was found in the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism. And so he was teaching, he didn't agree with all of that. He had a lot of exceptions. And so the things he was teaching disagreed with those standards of faith. But see, in 1610, we're a year after Jacob, you wonder where the name Arminian comes from. It's from Jacob Arminius. He didn't name it Arminianism, just like Calvin didn't name it Calvinism, Right? But Arminius' students drafted five articles of faith based on his teachings. They drew them up, and the followers of Jacob Arminius, who were called, became called the Arminians, presented five doctrines to the state of Holland in the form of a remonstrance, which is a protest. It's like a, a petition. You know, you, you get enough people to sign a petition, and you can make something happen. They were seeking to draft enough people to come on board with this protest so they could change the Belgic Confession of Faith and the Heidelberg Catechism to match up with what they believed because that's what they'd been taught by Jacob Arminius in various ways and forms. But the five points of Arminianism were presented first as a protest. And we'll get to those in a minute. We'll, we'll, we'll see those and compare those with, with the other. But so that's, we're starting to figure out where the five points of Calvinism come from because the five points of Arminianism come first in the form of a protest. The Arminians objected to the doctrines of God's sovereignty, human inability, unconditional election, or predestination. Let me stop. Did you hear when I was reading the Scriptures a word that sounded a little bit like predestination? Yeah, because it's in there. It's not a Presbyterian thing or another person's thing. It's a Bible thing. There's, some people have an unbiblical doctrine of predestination and some have a biblical doctrine of predestination, but it's a Bible word. It's a word that we need to understand. But
But they, they, they objected to unconditional election or predestination. They objected to particular redemption. They objected to irresistible grace. And they objected to perseverance of the saints. So it's from these objections then we get the response. And we'll see that in a minute. But look at Roger Nicole summarized it. Don't, I don't know if I left these in your notes, but I, don't, I didn't. But we've got slides for them. Roger Nicole summarized the five points of Arminianism or the tunnel of time theology that you've heard me say. But here they are. Number one, God elects or reproves on the basis of foreseen faith or unbelief. So in other words, God looks down through the tunnel of time and those He sees that would believe, He chooses them. There's a problem with that if we're dead in sin and trespasses. You've got to come up with prevenient grace or something. But just from a doctrine of God perspective, God doesn't look down through any tunnels of time. He sees it all as one thing. He created time as well as everything else. But they, they, the first point of Arminianism was that God elects or reproves on the basis of foreseen faith or unbelief. So in other words, God looks to see what man is going to do, and then he responds to that with what he does. Number two, Christ died for all men and for every man, although only believers are saved. Some of you might say, that's what I've always heard taught. I know. All I'm saying is hang in there with me and just wait. And let's see what the scripture teaches when we get into that part of the study. Number three, man is so depraved that divine grace is necessary unto faith or any good deed. All right. Number four, this grace may be resisted. And number five, whether all who are truly regenerate will certainly... Now watch this. A lot of people these days like to steal the... The, the P, the last part of the tulip. But this was the Arminian position. Whether all who are truly regenerate will certainly persevere in the faith is a point which needs further investigation. They later altered that to teach that the possibility of truly regenerate believers losing their faith and thus losing their salvation. God began a good work couldn't finish it because of you. And that's kind of the five points. Here, Packer gives us the philosophical basis of Arminianism. Number one, man is never so completely corrupted by sin that he cannot savingly believe the gospel when it is put before him. Insert. The lost man is never so completely corrupted by sin that he cannot savingly believe the gospel when it's put before him. Packer's telling us what Arminianism believed. This is the philosophy of Arminianism. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? Unless you are born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Jesus said those who love darkness will not come into the light. Paul said we are dead in trespasses and sins before grace. It is God who makes us alive. 
But the philosophy of Arminianism is that man is never so completely corrupted. This is why I'm always teasing with you. He's just mostly dead. Man is never so completely corrupt by sin that he cannot savingly believe the gospel. Number two, man is never so completely controlled by God that he cannot reject it. Now you see a lot of faults. You can see where they're kind of twisted in the wrong direction there. Number three, God's election of those who shall be saved is prompted by His foreseeing that they will of their own accord believe. That's again taking us back to that first point before. Now watch this. Here's where we start getting very insecure if we're thinking. Christ's death did not ensure the salvation of anyone, for it did not secure the gift of faith to anyone. What it did, rather, was create a possibility of salvation for everyone if they believe. It just made salvation possible. Again, this is the philosophical basis of Arminianism. And it's all through the church these days. Number five. It rests with... Now, here's where you ought to get really insecure if you believe this. Okay? It rests with believers to keep themselves in a state of grace by keeping up their faith. Those who fail, hear, fall away, and are lost. Amazing grace. How sweet to sound. If 99.9% of my salvation is God's and the point one is mine, or the point oh 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 one is mine, or the I'm going to be lost. Arminianism made man's salvation depend ultimately on man himself, saving faith being viewed throughout as man's own work, and because it was his own, it was not God's work in him. Remember, man's got to take the first step. He's got to be able to take that first step. Yes, Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism especially is bleeding into this. Okay, so that was the protest. The Armenians put forward those five points of protest. And again, that's a summary. So they put that forth in the form of a protest, which was really what spurred... Now here we go with the origin of the five points of Calvinism. This is what spurred what's called the Synod of Dort. It was, it was a synod that met in, the, in Dort. In other words, the church met together. The Reformed Church in, in, in that area, in those countries, met together to examine this protest. And really, we'll be impressed by the, how serious they took it, right? Look at the, the, the National Synod. It was in the city of Dort, a city in the Netherlands. It was in 1618. And the purpose of the synod was to examine the views of Arminius, in light of Scripture. Okay, these things that they're protesting, they're protesting the, the, the confession and the catechism here. So we're going to meet and pray and study and see if they're right. We're going we're to take a serious look at this. See, they didn't just brush it off. They were willing to look at Scripture to see what Scripture says. And listen, I want to beg you to do that. 
Don't go by your feelings. Don't go by what you think is right. Don't go by anything other than what the Word of God said. Remember last time, I was on the flip side of this until Acts 13, 48 invaded my life with power by God's Spirit applying it to me. All those who were appointed to eternal life believed. And it doesn't say the other way around. But they said, I mean, I love the humility of this in the church. Maybe these people are right. Let's, let's look into this, right? There were delegates from Germany, Switzerland, and England. Listen, now listen to this. This is how serious they took this. There were 154 sessions held over seven months to consider these matters. 154 sessions were held during seven months of that synod and the time they met to consider these matters. And here's what they did. The synod compared the five points of Arminianism to the Scripture. So they're digging through these things in minutia, and they're looking at the Scripture. They didn't just go to the confession and say, well, this doesn't match the confession, so it's out. They dug into these things to see if they matched up with what Scripture teaches. They took the protest seriously. And just the fact that they met for seven months to consider these matters tells you how seriously they took it. 154 sessions. 154 Bible studies. That's what it was. Do these things match up to Scripture? Yes, sir. 1618. Look up Senator Dort and you get more information than you want to read. I'm trying to give you the nutshell here. And some of you will want more, and I, I appreciate that. But what was the point? Listen, hear me, I'm going to say it again. What does the Scriptures teach? Maybe these brothers who have come up with this are seeing something we haven't seen, or maybe we've seen it wrongly, or maybe the Reformation is getting it wrong. See, the Reformation had come to the Netherlands with great power. Things have been transformed. By the way, what is the Reformation? Is it making up new stuff? It's recapturing the truth of the Scriptures because the church had encrusted those truths over with tradition and error. And so the Reformation comes to the Netherlands and the churches are revitalized and established in the truth to such an extent that the Belgic Confession is put together and the Heidelberg Catechism is put together and those were the doctrinal standards for the church in that area. The Reformation Church. Both the Belgic uh, Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism predate the Westminster Confession and Standards. Right? And so they're, they're not just comparing these things to the confession, though. They're comparing them with Scripture. So they compared the five points of Arminianism to the Scripture and found that since they could not reconcile that teaching with the Word of God, here comes our Word again. They rejected the five points of Arminianism as an alternate idea. Heresy. The church found it to be heresy. Why? Because it didn't match with Scripture. But they felt that... See, now here we go. We're about to get where we get the tulip from. 
They felt, however, that a mere rejection was not sufficient. Just saying, no, this is not what Scripture teaches, is not sufficient. So, they also responded and set forth the true teaching of Scripture, which is summarized by what we now know as the five points. So they said, no, this doesn't line up with Scripture. This is teaching something that's contrary to Scripture. And to prove that, here is what Scripture teaches. So the five points of Calvinism were in response to the five points of Arminianism, which was a protest against what was already the official doctrine of the church. See, the doctrine of predestination and election didn't start in the Reformation. It didn't. You know who started that doctrine? God. You know who the first one to teach it was in clarity? Jesus. And following in His train, the apostles, including the Apostle Paul. So the five points of Calvinism are a response to a protest showing that the Armenian presentation was not in accord with Scripture, but these things are in accord with Scripture. Quickly, the five points in the Reformation. The Reformers held that the doctrines of the sovereignty of God, the total depravity of man, and of unconditional election. Not only Calvin held to... It wasn't just John Calvin... It was Luther, it was Zwingli, it was Bullinger, it was Bucer, and some of the outstanding leaders of the Reformation. Yeah, they differed on some other points, but they were in agreement on these things. The doctrine of predestination, and they taught it with emphasis. Now, they would also recommend teaching it with care. Because we can teach the the five points of, of Calvinism, we can teach the doctrine of election in such a proud and harsh way is to actually make people get the wrong idea and reject it. Right? But we need to teach it with care because these are difficult things. These are things that in some of us take a period of adjustment to really sort of embrace. It takes us a while to examine the scriptures for ourselves and come to these conclusions. Let me just go ahead and tell you, if you don't examine the scriptures for yourself, If you won't actually read what the Scripture teaches, you won't ever be sound in your salvation and you won't come to the right conclusion on these matters and others. If you just take for gospel what people tell you, you are in grave danger. Even, don't just take what I tell you. What does the Scriptures teach? Watch over me. Watch over Corey. Watch over Sam. Watch over Brian. Watch over Mike. Watch over anybody who teaches to make sure these things are so and biblical. I mean, what did God praise the Bereans for? They heard the word with joy, right? So they weren't grumpy listeners. They heard the teaching. They didn't look like they was baptized in pickle juice when you were teaching. None of that was pickle juice this morning. But then they went home and searched the Scriptures. Or they went to the synagogue or wherever they could get a hold to the Scriptures and studied the Scriptures to see if these things are so. That's what I'm recommending to you. I had a long fight with this stuff. Cindy didn't have nearly as hard a time. She's more godly than I am, and anybody can tell you that. 
No, she, no, seriously, she accepted it because the Word of God taught it. She's like, look, it's right there. And I'm like, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. Ah! And then God took me to Acts 13, 48. He humbled me, made me go back to my discipler and say, I'm sorry, and gave me knowing God and some other things, and I learned better. But the Reformation taught these things because they saw it in the Word of God. And notice, be, be thankful I'm thankful that the church in the Netherlands didn't just take what the Armenians taught, compare it to their confession, and reject it. I mean, if something comes at you that seems out of accord, somebody, would you take 154 Bible studies to figure it out? There's nothing wrong with going to somebody else and say, you ever heard of this? Tell me more about this. Help me. What does the Scriptures teach? That's what the Reformation was all about. Back to the sources. The original sources. The scriptures in the original languages. That's why guys like Calvin could preach on the fly. Translate the Hebrew and Greek on the fly while he was preaching. I can't do that. Study languages for a while. You'll see what a challenge that is to take Greek and bring it over into English in such a way that it's correct, number one, and understandable, and to not have to sit at your desk for a long time to make that happen. Pretty good scholar. That's the kind of scholars they were, though. All right, now that you've shown yourself to be elect and you've taken notes on the back side of your sheet, you always want to know, am I elect? Well, look, are you? No. <laughs> Let's, let's look at the, um, the handout that I gave you that I don't have a copy of. Okay. I gave them all to you. Now, what I did this for, I've given you this so that you can keep this and um, you can read over it. And as we go through, you can, like, we're going to study... On the five points of Calvinism, we're going to study each one of these and then we'll, we'll compare and contrast it with the other side. So um, we're going to kind of do what they did in the Senate, just not to, not to that depth. We're going to take each one of these and just have a, a session on each one and ask ourselves, is this what the Bible teaches? Which one of these most accords with what the Bible teaches? But one of the reasons I wanted to take you through the, through, through the little, a little bit, just a, that was a, I mean, that's a snapshot tour of church history. I hope you want to read more. It's to show you that Pelagianism was declared heresy by the church. Semi-Pelagianism was declared heresy by the church. Arminianism was declared heresy by the church. Why? Because it didn't line up with the total of what Scripture teaches. Anytime you find yourself using one verse to take away another verse, you know you kind of need to, need to work harder. But look at this. We'll read through this, um, and we'll talk a little bit. Maybe not running out of time, aren't we? Free will or human ability. This is the Arminian side. Although the human nature was seriously affected by the fall, so they moved away from Pelagius a little bit, Man has not been left in a state of total spiritual helplessness. God graciously enables every sinner to repent and believe. 
but he does so in such a manner as to not interfere. I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh. As to not interfere with man's freedom. Each sinner possesses a free will and his eternal destiny depends upon how he uses it. Total inability or total depravity. Because of the fall, man is unable of himself, notice those are important words, of himself, to savingly believe the gospel. Now here we go with some biblical doctrine. The sinner is dead, blind, deaf to the things of God. His heart is deceitful and desperately corrupt. Where is that language coming from? Straight out of Scripture, right? His will is not free, but in bondage to, to his evil nature. Therefore, he will not, indeed cannot, choose good over evil in the spiritual realm. So in the will... Obviously, we know that we all still make choices. So we still have the capacity to choose A or B, right? But we always do that for a reason. And our moral will is in bondage to sin. So that apart from God, it doesn't mean an unbeliever never, never does an outwardly righteous thing, right? But that in, as far as God's salvation goes, we're dead to that. We will not submit to that. We will not believe that we're sinful and lost and can do no good, right? And that we must just solely depend upon Christ. Jesus said this. But I wanted you to see that a lot of the language in the summary of total ability or total inability or total depravity is simply coming straight out of Scripture. Whereas the other side is not. And I know these are summaries, but it's true. That's it's, it's really that clear when you study Scripture, and we'll see that when we study these things. Let me just point you to one. I, I tell you, it's just irritating me to no end to not be looking in Scripture any more than we are tonight. But um, look in John chapter 3. I'll just, I'll, this is the only one I'm going to do, but just want to let Jesus speak. John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment. Now the thee is there and it should be there. The light, him, the light of the world. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things, watch this. Everyone who does wicked things, who does wicked things? Everyone. Most of the people that are ever born... Sinner come, child's come, children come from the womb doing what? Mm-hmm. Is that what you're going to Mm-hmm. Okay. For everyone who does wicked things, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God, in union with Christ, in Zach. God's at work, born again. Those who do wicked things are in bondage to those wicked things and will, will not choose the light. So our moral will is in bondage to sin apart from grace and Christ. That's why Luther, Luther wrote the book, The Bondage of the Will. It's not a big book. I'd encourage you to read it. But see, that's what we're going to do with these five points. We're going to take them and we're going to look at Scripture and see what matches up. I just gave you a preview with one of the verses. 
Look at number two on your sheet. Conditional election versus unconditional election. And this will explain a little bit about what those terms mean. God's choice of certain individuals unto salvation before the foundation of the world was based upon His foreseeing that they would respond to His call. He selected only those whom He knew would of themselves freely believe the gospel. Thus the sinner's choice of Christ, not God's choice of the sinner, is the ultimate cause of salvation. Okay, let's read the other side and see if that sounds a little more biblical. God's choice of certain individuals unto salvation before the foundation of the world rested solely in His own sovereign will. Remember us reading Ephesians? Who got the praise? God's plan, God's will, God's grace. His choice of particular sinners was not based on any foreseen faith, repentance, etc. Thus God's choice of the sinner, not the sinner's choice of Christ, is the ultimate cause of salvation. That is one of the places we really struggle when we're first exposed to these things. Don't be surprised if you struggle with this. Welcome to the club. Just keep asking yourself, not what do I feel, not what seems right to me. What does the scripture teach? All who were appointed to eternal life believe. But was that appointment based on what God foresaw I would do? What did Jesus say? What did Jesus see that people would do apart from grace? Those who do wicked things, hate the light, choose the darkness. So if that's true, how many people would God have chosen? His son. That's all. God's not reactionary. He's not looking to see what we do and then base what he does on based on what we do. And we're going to do a certain amount of billy goating. In your mind, you're going to think, yeah, but. Yeah, but this scripture. Yeah, but what about this scripture? Oh, wait, wait, wait. I got you here. And we'll see that they all line up. They all line up when we rightly understand them and interpret them in their context. If you'll go look at Romans 8, I'm not going to take time to do that, but you'll see that God knew four new people, not their actions. He foreknew people. What did it mean when Adam knew his wife? Did he knew about her? No, that's how you have kids. He knew his wife. It's God setting his affection beforehand. We read it in Ephesians chosen before the foundation of the world. And when we read Romans 9, we'll see that it had nothing to do with us and what we would do. It was in spite of what we deserve. John 1, 12 and 13 and in that area, it was not based on our, our will. Right? We've got to keep moving. Number three, universal redemption or general atonement. <clears throat> this is probably the one that um, people re, uh, re, struggle with the most, if I had to pick one. So the Armenians believed in a universal gen- or gen- redemption or a general atonement. Christ's redeeming work made it, see that possibility word? Didn't assure anything. Christ's redeeming work made it possible for everyone to be saved, but did not actually secure the salvation of anyone. Although Christ died for all men and for every man, I guess you girls are out. No, it's just language. Only those who believe in him are saved. Christ's redemption becomes effective only if man chooses to accept it. 
What did Jesus say man would do with the light? Reject it. Okay. Particular redemption or limited atonement. This has nothing to do with the value of His atonement. It has to do with the purpose of it. Right? Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect and actually secured salvation. You can underline those two words for them. His death paid the penalty for, of sin in the place of certain specified sinners. The gift of faith is infallibly applied by the Spirit to all for whom Christ died, therefore guaranteeing their salvation. I think once, once the dust settles, well, I know, once the dust settles and once we bring Scripture together and once we cease what Scripture is teaching, we might have started out on the left side, but we'll end up on the right side. I don't like, I like particular redemption better than limited atonement, but it messes up the flower. Makes it a two-pip. Or definite atonement, two-dip. I think it better communicates that way. Right? Because if we're going to be Calvinists, we don't want to be Christmas Calvinists. Noel. That's from R.C. Sproul, not me, so... Sanctified dad joke. Um, all right, look at number four. The Holy Spirit can be effectually resisted. The Spirit calls inwardly all those who are called outwardly by the gospel invitation. Wow. He does all that. He, I, I, I'm done with it when it says stuff like this. He does, <laughs> he does all that He can do to bring every sinner to salvation. If God does all that He can do, it's done. Y'all realize that, right? He doesn't fail. He never fails. Ever. But inasmuch as man is free... I'm sorry, I'm, I'm mocking this stuff. I, I need to start over. I realize we struggle with this. I really do. But inasmuch as man is free, he cannot successfully... He can successfully resist the Spirit's call. The Spirit cannot regenerate the poor sinner until he believes. Faith, which is man's contribution, proceeds and makes possible the new birth. Unless you are born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. You can't recognize it. You won't see that Jesus is king. You have to be born again first. Right side. The efficacious call of the Spirit or irresistible grace. The Holy Spirit extends to the elect a special inward call. This is the effectual call. There's the general call when I preach the gospel that goes out to everyone. And then there's within that general call the effectual work of the Spirit in certain hearts, some of which were baptized today. The Holy Spirit extends to the elect a special inward call that inevitably brings them to salvation. The external call which is made to all without distinction can be and often is rejected. Whereas the internal call, being born again, which is made only to the elect cannot be rejected. We don't want to once we're born again. It always results in conversion. By, by means of this special call, the Spirit irresistibly draws sinners to Christ. And finally, falling from grace. 
Those who believe and are truly saved can lose their salvation by, fall, by failing to keep up their faith, etc. All do not agree here. Like I said, some on the left side try to steal the perseverance part of, of the other. And on the right, all who were chosen by God, redeemed by Christ, and given faith by the Spirit are eternally saved. I know my sheep and they know me and I give to them what? Yes. They are kept by God and persevere to the end. Let me at least read Romans 8. I, this, is, this is bothering me. I can't help it. And listen, you can't have the satisfaction and this peace of this verse without the sovereignty of God, okay? We all love to quote it. Verse 28 of chapter 8 of Romans. And we know that, the, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. He can't guarantee that, so he's not sovereign. For those who are called according to his purpose. Think Ephesians 1, called. Now watch this. For those whom he foreknew. That's why I'm saying, look who he foreknew. It doesn't say what he foreknew. It doesn't say what they would do. This is people he foreknew. He, fore, he set his love upon beforehand. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So if he foreknew you, if he set his love upon you, you're going to be con confirmed and conformed into the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now watch this in case you didn't catch it. Those whom he predestined, he also called. This is not the general call of the gospel. This is that effectual call, that work of the Spirit in the heart. Keep reading and, you, and you'll see that, right? And those whom he called, he justified. Look, we can put the word in there. All whom he called, he justified. Every one of them. Keep reading. And all those whom he justified... He also glorified. He finished the work. If He justified you, He will glorify you. How can you fall away? You can't because your security is Him, not you. If your security is you, if you've got to keep your faith, you know, you, it's almost like turning it around. Instead of you being in Jesus' hand and in the Father's hand, you've got Jesus in your hand. You better hold on to Him. That's not a biblical picture. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Oh, yeah, but I can snatch myself out of his hand. Really? Well, he's at work in you. Number one, you won't want to. But, hmm. See, this is just a summary. This is what we're going to study. If, you're, if it causes you to struggle, I get it. All my plea to you is keep coming. Come through all of the study. You get through all of the study and you say, I don't believe a word you said. I'll live with that. But if you knee-jerk reject, re, re, reject it now, that's what it is, a knee-jerk rejection. Because we're going to dig into the Scriptures and see if these things are true. Take this home and think about it. You, if you want, I can give you Scripture references and I will do that every week. I probably will send out an email every week on what we're going to cover and give you the, the references I want you to focus on and, and be thinking about and be praying about. So that when we come together 
on, on that Sunday evening. Now, I, probably, I won't preach every time. I won't do this every Sunday evening when we have a worship service. But whenever I'm here, this is what I'm going to do. And so I'll send you out um, the description and some verses. You can study those, and then we'll come together and study it. And here's the big thing. We'll talk about it. And you can say, I don't agree with that. And tell me why. And I'll say, well, here's why I believe it. And let's look at the Scripture together. Because I'm not offended if you don't agree with me. Because I was in that point at one point. Right? I get what kind of struggle this is. But I believe once we get through studying each one of these and once you really invest in it, you're going to see that, yeah, the church was right. This stuff on the left side, while it makes my flesh feel good, it's not biblical. And the emphasis is not on Christ on the left side. It's really kind of on me. I can't find much security in that. But on the right side... As much as I don't understand some of this and as much as I don't even like some of this, I can see how it lines up with Scripture. And boy, when the, when the initiative is God, when the responsibility is God, I can kind of rest there. I can find a place to rest as an imperfect, on the way, justified being, sanctified man if I know salvation is of the Lord. And that the work He began He's going to finish. See, if you're, if you're saying I can jump out, you can't say you can't have that verse. Because he won't finish the work that he started. If, he's, if he justified you, he's going to glorify you. There's a lot of false faith out there. There's a lot of people that have made professions of faith that didn't really have it. That doesn't really disprove any of this. Because the Word tells us there are many different kinds of soils. Only one of those was true faith. But I'm willing... And hopefully you will enjoy the freedom of talking about it and working through Scripture. But as, we, as I conclude, at least this, my part this, tonight, notice that Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, and jumping forward to Arminianism were all challenges to accepted biblical doctrine of the church. And they were all condemned as heresy by the church in various synods and councils because the church went to Scripture and found that they did not line up with Scripture. So in the coming sessions, we'll examine these five points and show that they do indeed accurately represent the teachings of Scripture. And I'm looking forward to it. And, and yes, it requires a little bit of work for you and a little bit of thought for you. But a lot of times, you know, if you kind of dig into some scriptures and you kind of dig into these things, even as you're going through your work day, you, this thing keeps working. And it might be that 46 nail you drive if you're working in construction or what, because y'all don't drive nails like this anymore. We just boom, 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 boom. <laughs> be out there working and, and all of a sudden you go, oh. So just be patient. Look at the scriptures and let's see what they teach. Any comments or questions before we close tonight? Sam. You mentioned earlier about getting the names or whatnot. But one of the things that I think kind of separates this and maybe contemporary Lutherans, this wasn't just some sort of minor denominational disagreement. Yeah. Right. And so when the church saw these things, what was the big issue 
Right. Right. Sure. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't care whether or not you call it Calvinism. He would prefer you didn't. I can guarantee you that. Just call it the biblical doctrine of salvation. Right? I like doctrines of grace. I like that, that term. Because Calvin's not the only one who believed it, and he's not the first one that taught it, and he's not the only one that taught it. The Reformed Doctrine of Salvation, which, i.e., the Biblical Doctrine of Salvation. Remember, the Reformation was recapturing what the Scriptures teach. Listen, I get, I get that you might have been raised in a church that was mostly on the left side of this sheet. I was. I didn't know there was any other thing out there. For years and years and years and years and years. So, think about it and dig into it, and we'll talk about it. Yes, Mallory. Uh, I also went to a church that was more on the left side of the sheet, an Arminian church, and also vacation Bible school camps that are Arminian. So I would just like to caution the parents and grandparents in this room to uh, consider what those programs are teaching. Are they on the left? Are they untruthful? Or are they based on Scripture? So I know we might have friends in the area that would want to invite you and just because it's painted with Jesus and fun summer camp themes, it may or may not be scripturally based if you really get down to these points. So consider it and also consider that it's not um, fielded by our elders either. So just a point for the parents. Yeah, that's good. The reason he did that is we're recording these videos. And if you are watching this over a video and you want the sheet we handed out, just email me and email the church, email me, and uh, we'll, get the, we'll get this sheet to you. But, um, you know, when she's talking about it's not put together by your elders or approved by your elders, it's not that we want to rule your life. We just want to shepherd you and make sure you're being fed sound biblical material and that your kids are being fed sound biblical material. Because a lot of what's out there, and, I, and, I'm saying, and I'm not saying we're the only true church. We are not. There's a lot of good churches, right? But there's a lot of bad ones too. And there's a lot of left side out there in the church. So hopefully if you'll be patient, we can expose you to something different. Maybe it's something you've talked about or thought about but never in detail. And maybe you, you know... Be patient with us and we'll show you how these things on the right are really what the Bible teaches when we bring all the scriptures together. Anybody else want a microphone? Well, that's one way to shut it down, isn't it? <laughs> Tom.
God never learns anything. You know why? He doesn't need to. Perfect. And we'll bring those things out as we go through each individual one. Anything else? Read the doctrines of grace. Say again? Read the doctrines of grace. Yeah. And if you, if you struggle with these things and you've never really read anything on it, Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul is a great place to start. And listen, you might say, well, I don't want to read that book. I, I don't, okay, go on YouTube. Look up Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. You can watch every video in the series probably. You know, some of these other, in various ways to do that. But we often give away Chosen by God on the book table. Doctrines of Grace is another book that, that is good that give you a lot of scripture references and stuff by each point. So we're going to buy some books and have them on the table. We're going to recommend some books um, that you can read and uh, <coughs> then we'll, you know, provide various other materials, but thank y'all for coming. I know we're, we run a little longer tonight, but not unusual, right? As Tom Jones said. Uh, <laughs> all right, on that note, let me pray. Lord, just all we want to know is what your word teaches. We want to embrace. We want to hold to the truth that you've given us. We want to rightly interpret it rightly understand it, rightly apply it, live in its light. We want to be bound up in the security that you've provided in your salvation. So just help us, give us patience, help us to work through these things, increase the tribe, bring other people, use the videos, however however you would be most honored. But uh, we just bow before you tonight and thank you for your amazing undeserved grace. We don't understand it. We certainly believe it because your word teaches it. So we, we praise you tonight and we pray that you just continue to work in us for your glory and our good. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.